Men Like Gods, a novel by H.G. Wells. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This is a recording by Brian Powell, Portland, Oregon. Men Like Gods, a novel by H.G. Wells. To Florence Lamont, in whose home at Inglewood this story was christened. Book the First, The Eruption of the Earthlings. Men Like Gods, Chapter the First, Mr. Barnstable Takes a Holiday. Mr. Barnstable found himself in urgent need of a holiday, and he had no one to go with and nowhere to go. He was overworked, and he was tired of home. He was a man of strong natural affections. He loved his family extremely, so that he knew it by heart, and when he was in these jaded moods it bored him acutely. His three sons, who were all growing up, seemed to get leggier and larger every day. They sat down in the chairs he was just going to sit down in, they played him off his own pianola, they filled the house with hoarse, vast laughter at jokes that one couldn't demand to be told, they cut in on the elderly harmless flirtations that had hitherto been one of his chief consolations in this vale. They beat him at tennis, they fought playfully on the landings, and fell downstairs by twos and threes with an enormous racket. Their hats were everywhere. They were late for breakfast. They went to bed every night in a storm of uproar. Ha, 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 bump! And their mothers seemed to like it. They all cost money, with a cheerful disregard of the fact that everything had gone up except Mr. Barnstable's earning power. And when he said a few plain truths about Mr. Lloyd George at mealtimes, or made the slightest attempt to raise the tone of the table-talk above the level of the silliest persiflage, their attention wandered ostentatiously. At any rate, it seemed ostentatiously. He wanted badly to get away from his family to some place where he could think of its various members with quiet pride and affection, and otherwise not be disturbed by them. And also he wanted to get away for a time from Mr. Peeve. The very streets were becoming a torment to him, he wanted never to see a newspaper or a newspaper placard again he was obsessed by apprehensions of some sort of financial and economic smash that would make the great war seem a mere incidental catastrophe this was because he was sub-editor and general factotum of the liberal that well-known organ of the more depressing aspects of advanced thought and the unvarying pessimism of mr peeve his chief was infecting him more and more Formerly it had been possible to put up a sort of resistance to Mr. Peeve by joking furtively about his gloom with the other members of the staff, but now there were no other members of the staff. They had all been retrenched by Mr. Peeve in a mood of financial despondency. Practically now, nobody wrote regularly for the Liberal except Mr. Barnstable and Mr. Peeve. So Mr. Peeve had it all his own way with Mr. Barnstable, he would sit hunched up in the editorial chair with his hands deep in his trouser pockets, taking a gloomy view of everything, sometimes for two hours together. Mr. Barnstable's natural tendency was towards a modest hopefulness and a belief in progress, but Mr. Peeve held very strongly that a belief in progress was at least six years out of date, and that the brightest hope that remained to liberalism was for a good day of judgment soon. And having finished the copy of what the staff, when there was a staff, used to call his weekly indigest, Mr. Peeve would depart and leave Mr. Barnstable to get the rest of the paper together for the next week. Even in ordinary times, Mr. Peeve would have been hard enough to live with. 
but the times were not ordinary. They were full of disagreeable occurrences that made his melancholy anticipations all too plausible. The great coal lockout had been going on for a month and seemed to foreshadow the commercial ruin of England. Every morning brought intelligence of fresh outrages from Ireland, unforgivable and unforgettable outrages. A prolonged drought threatened the harvests of the world. The League of Nations, of which Mr. Barnstable had hoped enormous things in the great days of President Wilson, was a melancholy and self-satisfied futility. Everywhere there was conflict, everywhere unreason. Seven-eighths of the world seemed to be sinking down towards chronic disorder and social dissolution. Even without Mr. Peeve, it would have been difficult enough to have made headway against the facts. Mr. Barnstable was, indeed, ceasing to secrete hope, and for such types as he, hope is the essential solvent without which there is no digesting life. His hope had always been in liberalism and generous liberal effort, but he was beginning to think that liberalism would never do anything more forever than sit hunched up with its hands in its pockets, grumbling and peeving at the activities of baser but more energetic men, whose scrambling activities would inevitably wreck the world. Night and day now, Mr. Barnstable was worrying about the world at large, by night even more than by day, for sleep was leaving him, and he was haunted by a dreadful craving to bring out a number of the liberal of his very own to alter it all after Mr. Peeve had gone away, to cut out all the dyspeptic stuff, the miserable, empty girding at this wrong and that, the gloating on cruel and unhappy things, the exaggeration of the simple, natural, human misdeeds of Mr. Lloyd George, the appeals to Lord Grey, Lord Robert Cecil, Lord Lansdowne, the Pope, Queen Anne, or the Emperor Frederick Barbarossa. It varied from week to week. To rise and give voice and form to the young aspirations of a world reborn, and, instead, to fill the number with utopia. To say to the amazed readers of the liberal, Here are the things that have to be done. Here are the things we are going to do. What a blow it would be for Mr. Peeve at his Sunday breakfast. For once, too astonished to secrete abnormally, he might even digest that meal. But this was the most foolish of dreaming. There were the three young Barnstables at home and their need for a decent start in life to consider. And, beautiful as the thing was as a dream, Mr. Barnstable had a very unpleasant conviction that he was not really clever enough to pull such a thing off. He would make a mess of it somehow. One might jump from the frying pan into the fire. The liberal was a dreary, discouraging, ungenerous paper, but anyhow it was not a base and wicked paper. Still, if there was to be no such disastrous outbreak, it was imperative that Mr. Barnstable should rest from Mr. Peeve for a time. Once or twice already he had contradicted him. A row might occur any time. And the first step towards resting for Mr. Peeve was evidently to see a doctor. So Mr. Barnstable went to a doctor. "'My nerves are getting out of control,' said Mr. Barnstable. "'I feel horribly neurasthenic.' "'You are suffering from neurasthenia,' said the doctor. I dread my daily work. You want a holiday? You think I need a change? As complete a change as you can manage. Can you recommend any place where I could go? Where do you want to go? Nowhere definite. I thought you could recommend... Let some place attract you and go there. Do nothing to force your inclinations at the present time. Mr. Barnstable paid the doctor the sum of one guinea and, armed with these instructions, prepared to break the news of his illness and his necessary absence to Mr. Peeve whenever the occasion seemed ripe for doing so. For a time, this prospective holiday was merely a fresh addition to Mr. Barnstable's already excessive burthen of worries. 
to decide to get away was to find oneself face to face at once with three apparently insurmountable problems. How to get away? Whither? And since Mr. Barnstable was one of those people who tire very quickly of their own company, with whom? A sharp gleam of furtive scheming crept into the candid misery that had recently become Mr. Barnstable's habitual expression. But then, no one took much notice of Mr. Barnstable's expressions. One thing was very clear in his mind. Not a word of this holiday must be breathed at home. If once Mrs. Barnstable got wind of it, he knew exactly what would happen. She would, with an air of competent devotion, take charge of the entire business. "'You must have a good holiday,' she would say. She would select some rather distant and expensive resort in Cornwall or Scotland or Brittany. She would buy a lot of outfit. She would have afterthoughts to swell the luggage with inconvenient parcels at the last moment. And she would bring the boys. Probably she would arrange for one or two groups of acquaintances to come to the same place to liven things up. If they did, they were certain to bring the worst sides of their natures with them and to develop into the most indefatigable of bores. There would be no conversation. There would be much unreal laughter. There would be endless games. No! But how is a man to go away for a holiday without his wife getting wind of it? Somehow a bag must be packed and smuggled out of the house. The most hopeful thing about Mr. Barnstable's position, from Mr. Barnstable's point of view, was that he owned a small automobile of his very own. It was natural that this car should play a large part in his secret plannings. It seemed to offer the easiest means of getting away. It converted the possible answer to whither from a fixed and definite place into what mathematicians call, I believe, a locus. And there was something so companionable about the little beast that it did to a slight but quite perceptible extent answer the question, with whom? It was a two-seater. It was known in the family as the footbath, Coleman's mustard, and the yellow peril. As these names suggest, it was a low, open car of clear yellow color. Mr. Barnstable used it to come up to the office from Sydenham because it did thirty-three miles to the gallon and was ever so much cheaper than a season ticket. It stood up in the court under the office window during the day. At Sydenham it lived in a shed of which Mr. Barnstable carried the only key. So far he had managed to prevent the boys from either driving it or taking it to pieces. At times Mrs. Barnstable made him drive her about Sydenham for her shopping, but she did not really like the little car because it exposed her to the elements too much and made her dusty and disheveled. Both by reason of all that it made possible and by reason of all that it debarred, the little car was clearly indicated as the medium for the needed holiday. And Mr. Barnstable really liked driving it. He drove very badly, but he drove very carefully, and though it sometimes stopped and refused to proceed, it did not do, or at any rate it had not so far done as most other things did in Mr. Barnstable's life, which was to go due east when he turned the steering wheel west, so that it gave him an agreeable sense of mastery. In the end, Mr. Barnstable made his decisions with great rapidity. Opportunity suddenly opened in front of him. Thursday was his day at the printer's, and he came home on Thursday evening feeling horribly jaded. The weather kept obstinately hot and dry. It made it none the less distressing that this drought presaged famine and misery for half the world. And London was in full season, smart and grinning. If anything, it was a sillier year than 1913, the great tango year, which, in the light of subsequent events, Mr. Barnstable had hitherto regarded as the silliest year in the world's history. The Star had the usual batch of bad news along the margin of the sporting 
and fashionable intelligence that got the displayed space. Fighting was going on between the Russians and Poles, and also in Ireland, Asia Minor, the India frontier, and eastern Siberia. There had been three new horrible murders. The miners were still out, and a big engineering strike was threatened. There had been only standing room in the down train, and it had started twenty minutes late. He found a note from his wife explaining that her cousins at Wimbledon had telegraphed that there was an unexpected chance of seeing the tennis there with Mademoiselle Langlin and all the rest of the champions, and that she had gone over with the boys and would not be back until late. It would do their game no end of good, she said, to see some really first-class tennis, and it was a servant's social that night. Would he mind being left alone in the house for once? The servants would put him out some cold supper before they went. Mr. Barnstable read this note with resignation. While he ate his supper, he ran his eye over a pamphlet a Chinese friend had sent him to show how the Japanese were deliberately breaking up what was left of the civilization and education of China. It was only as he was sitting and smoking a pipe in his little back garden after supper that he realized all that being left alone in the house meant for him. Then suddenly he became very active. He rang up Mr. Peeve, told him of the doctor's verdict, explained that the affairs of the liberal were just then in a particularly leavable state, and got his holiday. Then he went to his bedroom and packed up a hasty selection of things to take with him in an old Gladstone bag that was not likely to be immediately missed, and put this in the dickey of his car, after which he spent some time upon a letter which he addressed to his wife and put away very carefully in his breast pocket. Then he locked up the car shed and composed himself in a deck chair in the garden with his pipe and a nice thoughtful book on the bankruptcy of Europe, so as to look and feel as innocent as possible before his family came home. When his wife returned, he told her casually that he believed he was suffering from neurasthenia, and that he had arranged to run up to London on the morrow and consult a doctor in the matter. Mrs. Barnstable wanted to choose him a doctor, but he got out of that by saying that he had to consider Peeve in the matter, and that Peeve was very strongly set on the man he had already in fact consulted. And when Mrs. Barnstable said that she believed they all wanted a good holiday, he just grunted in a non-committal manner. In this way, Mr. Barnstable was able to get right away from his house with all the necessary luggage for some week's holiday without arousing any insurmountable opposition. He started next morning Londonward. The traffic on the way was gay and plentiful, but by no means troublesome, and the Yellow Peril was running so sweetly that she might almost have been named the Golden Hope. In Camberwell, he turned into the Camberwell New Road and made his way to the post office at the top of Vauxhall Bridge Road. There he drew up. He was scared but elated by what he was doing. He went into the post office and sent his wife a telegram. Dr. Pagan, he wrote, says solitude and rest urgently needed, so am going off Lake District, recuperate, have got bag and things, expecting this letter follows. Then he came outside and fumbled in his pocket and produced and posted the letter he had written so carefully overnight. It was deliberately scrawled to suggest neurasthenia at an acute phase. Dr. Pagan, it explained, had ordered an immediate holiday and suggested that Mr. Barnstable should wander north. It would be better to cut off all letters for a few days or even a week or so. He would not trouble to write unless something went wrong. No news would be good news. Rest assured, all would be well. As soon as he had a certain address for letters, he would wire it, but only very urgent things were to be sent on. After this, he resumed his seat in his car with such a sense of freedom as he had never felt since his first holidays from his first school. He made for the Great North Road, 
but at the traffic jam at Hyde Park Corner he allowed the policeman to turn him down towards Knight's Bridge and afterwards at the corner where the Bath Road forks away from the Oxford Road an obstructive van put him into the former. But it did not matter very much. Anyway, it led to elsewhere, and he could work northward later. The day was one of those days of gay sunshine that were characteristic of the great drought of 1921. It was not in the least sultry. Indeed, there was a freshness about it that blended with Mr. Barnstable's mood to convince him that there were quite agreeable adventures before him. Hope had already returned to him. He knew he was on the way out of things, though, as yet, he had not the slightest suspicion how completely out of things the way was going to take him. It would be quite a little adventure presently to stop in an inn and get some lunch, and if he felt lonely as he went on he would give somebody a lift and talk. It would be quite easy to give people lifts because so long as his back was generally towards Sydenham and the liberal office, it did not matter at all now in which direction he went. A little way out of Slough he was passed by an enormous grey touring car. It made him start and swerve. It came up alongside him without a sound and though according to his only very slightly inaccurate speedometer he was doing a good twenty-seven miles an hour, it had passed him in a moment. Its occupants, he noted, were three gentlemen and a lady. They were all sitting up and looking backward as though they were interested in something that was following them. They went by too quickly for him to note more than that the lady was radiantly lovely in an immediate and indisputable way, and the gentleman nearest to him had a peculiarly elfin yet elderly face. Before he could recover from the eclat of this passage, a car with the voice of a prehistoric saurian warned him that he was again being overtaken. This was how Mr. Barnstable liked being passed, by negotiation. He slowed down, abandoned any claim to the crown of the road, and made encouraging gestures with his hand. A large, smooth, swift limousine availed itself of his permission to use the thirty-odd feet or so of road to the right of him. It was carrying a fair load of luggage. But except for a young gentleman with an eyeglass who was sitting beside the driver, he saw nothing of its passengers. It swept round a corner ahead in the wake of the touring car. Now even a mechanical footbath does not like being passed in this lordly fashion on a bright morning on the open road. Mr. Barnstable's accelerator went down and he came round that corner a good ten miles per hour faster than his usual cautious practice. He found the road quite clear ahead of him. Indeed he found the road much too clear ahead of him. It stretched straight in front of him for perhaps a third of a mile. On the left were a low, well-trimmed hedge, scattered trees, level fields, some small cottages lying back, remote poplars, and a distant view of Windsor Castle. On the right were level fields, a small inn, and a background of low, wooded hills. A conspicuous feature in this tranquil landscape was the board advertisement of a riverside motel at Maidenhead. Before him was a sort of heat flicker in the air, and two or three little dust whirls spinning along the road. And there was not a sign of the great touring car, and not a sign of the limousine. It took Mr. Barnstable the better part of two seconds to realize the full astonishment of this fact. Neither to the right nor left was there any possible side road down which either car could have vanished. And if they had already got round the further bend, then they must be travelling at the rate of two or three hundred miles per hour. It was Mr. Barnstable's excellent custom, whenever he was in doubt, to slow down. He slowed down now. He went on at a pace of perhaps fifteen miles an hour, staring open-mouthed about the empty landscape for some clue to this mysterious disappearance. Curiously enough, he had no feeling that he himself was in any sort of danger. Then his car seemed to strike something and skidded. 
It skidded round so violently that for a moment or so Mr. Barnstable lost his head. He could not remember what ought to be done when a car skids. He recalled something vaguely about steering in the direction in which the car is skidding, but he could not make out in the excitement of the moment in what direction the car was skidding. Afterwards he remembered that at this point he heard a sound. It was exactly the same sound, coming as the climax of an accumulating pressure, sharp like the snapping of a lute-string, which one hears at the end, or beginning, of insensibility under anaesthetics. He had seemed to twist round towards the hedge on the right, but now he found the road ahead of him again. He touched his accelerator, and then slowed down and stopped. He stopped in the profoundest astonishment. This was an entirely different road from the one he had been upon half a minute before. The hedges had changed, the trees had altered, Windsor Castle had vanished, and, a small compensation, the big limousine was in sight again. It was standing by the roadside about two hundred yards away. End of chapter one. This was a recording by Brian Powell, Portland, Oregon, September 2019.